This morning we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, so for, I know a few of you, this is your first time or first time in a while attending with us. Uh, this is not the kind of sermon that you'll normally get here at Fellowship Bible Church. Uh, this, there will be uh, sermon aspects to it, but it will also contain a large extended illustration, almost like a parable. Uh, there was a paragraph I had to cut from my last Sunday sermon. The last two weeks we've been in Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so we looked two weeks ago at the sort of negative side of that, how how. I have been crucified with Christ, and what that I is that has been crucified with Christ and no longer lives. And then last week we looked at how, how it is that Christ lives in us, and how Christ in us compels us to faith, even here as we struggle in our flesh, and how that life of faith actually then makes us like Christ. So the last two weeks we looked at this, our identity in Christ. And we've seen how, so in one sense, God's grace comes to us and saves us. This is what we generally call here salvation, right? He is the God of our salvation. When we say that we're saved by Jesus, we say that we're saved from our sins, which is all the, the, the admittedly dumb stuff that we do, but we're also saved from our righteousness, right? So this is Paul's situation in Galatians 2. He says, I was born a Jew. I was a worker of the law that God gave to Moses. Like, he said, but I was proven to be a transgressor. So all my righteousness ended up not being righteous. I did not end up being right because I realized that Christ had to die for me. I won't preach that whole message again, but Paul says we're saved from our sins, we're saved from our righteousness, proved to be transgressors, we are crucified with Christ. So the grace of God does that, right? But then the grace of God comes further into our lives and makes us like Jesus. The fancy word for this is sanctification. You can kind of see uh, sanctus uh, in that word, made holy. This is where we become like Christ because Christ lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ and Christ lives in me. But I want to talk this morning about what about that, that old stuff? What about that pile of sins that we're ashamed of now? What about all that stuff that we used to think was proving that we're righteous, but now we recognize for the foolishness that it was? What about our folly, our shame, our sorrows? The things we used to take pride in, but now when we think back on them, they fill us with regret? The stuff that we don't like to talk about. What about those parts of our life? How far does grace flow? Does the grace of God come into our life and just say, we're not going to talk about the stuff that you don't want to talk about anymore. We're just going to, there's a new you. We're just going to focus on that. What does Jesus do with all that stuff? You know, we've been saying that uh, what difference does Jesus make to all these different problems that the Galatians are, are, are facing and And Jesus changes everything. What difference does Jesus make in our life? Jesus changes everything. So this morning, in a sense, we're going to define everything a little bit more. And so I'm going to tell you now a story that illustrates the progress of God's grace. I'm going to tell it as if it's your story. You were a bright kid. 
Of course, your mom and dad praised you for being thoughtful, intelligent, careful. Your grandparents praised you too, which meant a lot because they were kind of the family's heroes. Everyone admired grandma and grandpa because they were, they were doing it right. And everybody wanted to be like them. You wanted to be like them. One thing they did was they saved old jars and containers. You know, grandma would wash them and dry them, hand them to you to put away in the pantry with the others. And, and they always had a stack of them. And they would say, it's always good to have an extra jar handy. And once in a while, you would see them use one, and you could tell that they were proud of their thrift and thoughtfulness, their forethought there. And you were proud to be their grandkid. And you vowed that you too would be a good person when you got older. You would do the right things. You would do things right, just like them. And so that bright, young, careful kid became a bright, careful adult, or at least you tried to be, right? And so part of that, naturally, was you saved jars and containers as well. Which jars and containers did you save? Well, it's better to have a variety, you never know. How many should you save? Well, it's always better to have enough. When you moved to your own place, you found that the ritual of washing and stacking and storing jars and containers was pleasing. You know, seeing the stacks grow in your basement gave you meaningful satisfaction. It meant to you that you were, you were doing it right. You were being careful. You were being thoughtful. You were being wise. Now, sure, you didn't use them that often, but when you did use them, you felt extraordinary, extraordinarily validated. You felt right. You felt, and you felt a connection to your family and gratitude for the legacy of righteousness that you'd inherited. You felt like you were right and you were with the right kind of people. And then one evening, you were sitting on the couch watching your favorite home makeover show. And as the show began, the host began to excitedly reveal that today they're going to be doing something extraordinary. They're going to be doing a makeover of the home of a hoarder. And their enthusiasm became, of course, your own. It's infectious. You're, you're invested in this show. And so you can't wait to see these ridiculous people, these these hoarders and the foolish way that they live. So the episode begins and the remodelers visit the home and they walk in and they begin, of course, exclaiming, everything's played up for laughs. Look at this, look at this stack, look at, this. oh my goodness. And then they say, you're never going to believe the basement. And so down they go into the basement. And what do they see in the basement? They find stacks and boxes full of jars and containers. And the host plays this up as this is this hilarious, bizarre, who could live this way kind of thing, but you are painfully aware of the fact that this hoarder has less than you have in your basement. <laughs> and so not right away, but as the memory of that mockery comes to mind, you don't know what to do with it. In one part, you're angry and you feel a little hurt. You're confused and you're ashamed. You wonder, am I a hoarder? I, I can't be a hoarder. Am I a hoarder? And over time, you realize, I'm a hoarder. And if I'm a hoarder, that means that I'm not the wise, thoughtful, careful person I thought I was. 
This thing that I've done for so long to get a sense of security and to feel satisfied in who I am, this thing that I've done to tell myself a story of myself, to connect me to, to my righteous family, I don't think it's true. Maybe they were doing it right, but I know that I'm not doing it right. I'm wrong. And, and now, now, well, now I'm lost, right? You begin to... You begin to live with a deep sense of shame. You know, good days, right, you forget all about it. But on bad days, the shame becomes this just astonishing weight. You find yourself staring into the middle distance thinking about who I am. You find yourself speaking to God and you decide to begin attending church, which you haven't done really since you were a kid. You hear passages like uh, Psalm 51 where the psalmist talks about being washed clean of sin and folly and shame. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me and I will be clean. So you look to God for hope. You accept the gift of what Jesus did for you and you find yourself being told and, and feeling saved from all this. The preacher explains that you have a new identity now. And your new identity in Christ is defined only by your relationship with Him and what He has done for you and His, His work in your life. And all that, of course, that message gives you profound peace. You now live with a sense of, of humility, right? You've been bad and now and you've seen that and Jesus has loved you and a sense of gratitude for Him. And of course, you, you struggle to maintain this and to trust in Jesus. But you've learned that that struggle is all part of living this life in the flesh by faith in the Son of God, and you are saved and you are becoming like Jesus Christ. And so, you know, you, you buy fewer jars. You recycle everything promptly. You look back on the jars and container business as the old you. Now you're a reasonable, reasonable person. You're not perfect, of course, but you've seen the light. And your life begins to change, you become more relaxed, you get outside more, connect with your friends more frequently, even go back to school. Like You're, you're on a, a good new path. But in your basement, your basement is still full of jars and containers. Too many really for you to move, you're too busy to bother with it, and you're too embarrassed to let anyone in and help. And so you put a door on the basement and you just keep it shut. You don't know what to do. You don't really have hope for that problem, and, and you don't like to think about it. And then one evening, there's a knock at your door. You open up to a scared-looking young woman who has obviously been crying. Her rusty Corolla is running in the driveway still, and with a thick accent, she tells you a story, how her husband died not long after they moved there, and then she got hurt at her job but didn't have insurance. She was out of work for a while. So she had to borrow some money to take care of her son. But no matter how hard it seemed she worked, the debt got bigger. And this was not money borrowed from a bank, you understand, but from some, some bad men. And they said that if she doesn't pay soon, they're going to take her son away and put him to work like a slave. And she's done everything that she can think of. So finally she went to the pastor or priest, she's not sure what to call him, who said to pray to God for a miracle. And so she did that. And then he said God spoke to him and told him that God would provide for her, but that she needed to buy a bottle of oil and then begin to fill up all the jars and containers she could find. 
The minister knew someone who would, I guess, pay a lot of money for miracle oil, so get all the containers you can. So now her son is at home pouring and pouring the miracle bottle, but they're running out of jars, and no one has extra jars because everyone recycles, and she begins to cry, and she says, Do you have any jars or containers? Paul says that the gospel tears down our old idea of ourselves. It reveals us to be transgressors, to be off the path. But then the gospel says Christ is in you. And by his grace we become Christ-like. This is that salvation and sanctification. But what about all the stuff in the basement? We all have things down there, don't we? Things that have happened to us or that we did or that we made worse that we're embarrassed to talk about. Things that used to define us, that were big parts of our story, but now what do we do with them? So there's another layer that we need to talk about in understanding our new identity, and this is the layer of redemption. The grace of God comes into our life and saves us from our sin, and then the grace of Christ enters our lives and teaches us how to live. And in time, that grace reaches the stuff in our stories that we don't like, that we don't know what to do with. And when grace reaches those places, that's redemption. And this is the goal of God's grace. For when the grace of God goes everywhere in our lives, then it can extend further and bless others as well. We see this in Paul's own example here in Galatians chapter 1. This is at the very beginning, of course, of Paul's writing ministry, his apostolic ministry. Galatians is probably the first book written by Paul. He says that those Jews in Jerusalem were only hearing it said of him, that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. How do you think Paul felt about that? Being known as that guy. This guy used to persecute us. He tried to destroy our faith. Now he's preaching our faith. Just a couple years ago, he was all in on that. Right? That defined his life. When he tells his story, he says, I, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to... I was zealous for this cause. And now it's just the setup for, and now he preaches it. But they glorify God because of me. We see the same message. This is kind of how he understands the situation probably 20 years later when he's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy. He says, I receive mercy for this reason. So that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul said, I had this, this huge collection of jars and containers, all this nonsense and folly and shame, and yet God has brought that to the service so that other people who are equally stuck, equally broken, can see that God's grace and mercy will work for them as well. You know, we all have things that we're ashamed of. We all have things that we're afraid of in our lives. The question, the next question of, of grace is, can Jesus have it? Can he have it? Can he use it? Now, this is what Romans 8.28 means. Romans 8.28 says, uh, All things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. 
Think about some of what that verse teaches. All things. So that includes the stuff about you that you like. It includes the stuff about you you don't like. It includes the stuff of, about you that you put on your resume and the stuff about you that you hide from your resume. It includes all things. And what that verse says is that things work together. So not just, again, the things that make sense to us that we want to use and bring into other people's life and convince them of and, and affect them with, but that somehow these other parts of our life also work together in God's plan. What that verse tells us is that God has a purpose. He has a purpose for all the things. He has a purpose for all things. And he calls those who love him to come and participate and see. All things work together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. He has a purpose for all these things. And those who love him, he wants, he wants us to be a part of it. God gives us grace for all of our shame and grief. That's good. I love that about God, that my shame and grief and sorrow, he gives us grace for that. That's good. <clears throat> but what is more here is that God will give us grace to release our shame and grief to him so that he can help others. So what we have in our basement can bring salvation and hope and salvation to others as well. And that's even better. Now, I know that to us, those things, those parts of our story feel like untouchable, unshareable wounds, right? They're the things that we try not to think about. We put a door over those spaces. When you think about even Jesus' passion, right? His death on the cross, which we sing about, we love, we celebrate. But how was that for him and the people who were with him in the moment, right? Paul is very, he's very honest later in his apostolic ministry when he says, this is embarrassing, it's folly, it's shame, it's a message of, it's a sorrowful and shameful message. It was failure. It was the failure of Jesus' messianic pretensions. It was a humiliating experience for Jesus and his followers. They all felt like fools, and it was a mark of shame. But then, what did it become? It became glorious. It became our favorite, our favorite thing about the story of Jesus. Because these things that are shame first become good because God works. That's what Romans 8.28 is saying. All things work. God's at work. And what he's at work with, I want you to understand that God is working, but I also want you to understand what is working when God works. It's his grace that's working. It's not just God the sort of manager with a clipboard checking things off. This is him scheming by grace to do good with everything that is in our lives. You think about Paul's story as we already alluded to, but think about every story of every person you love in Scripture. Peter, how many times did Peter step in it? Right? Think about Mary and her experience of sorrow. Think about Moses, David, Ruth, I mean, just go through the list. Our favorite thing about our favorite people, your favorite thing about your favorite people is not how they don't make any mistakes. 
It's not how they never suffer. It's not how they do everything right. Our favorite thing about them is how they are who they are despite having gone through that. And that is their least favorite thing about their their story. Our favorite thing about our favorite people is how we see God's grace in what is their least favorite part of their story. God's grace came to them in that sorrowful thing. And we, we praise God for doing that. The God of all comforts, comforting us in our afflictions. And then God's grace comes to us in that story. The God of all comforts, comforting us in our afflictions so that we can comfort others in any affliction that they have. And why we love them and their story and the grace that God's given us through them is the same thing that God wants to do in us, to heal us and then to use that healing to help others. Now, we're talking about a sensitive part of our life and a sensitive part of our story. And I, I don't want you to feel like, uh, you know, we've got to somehow, we're, we're going to have testimony time and you've got to like come up here and tell everybody all of the worst things like at the next time we have a testimony Sunday or something. That's not what this is about. You know, God's not, he's not coercive, he's not demanding, he's not rude or pushy, he's not rushing us into something we're not ready for. But I want you to understand that according to Scripture, God offers us redemption. He offers us redemption, and, and the world needs that. Because the world is a broken place, right? And the world needs better stories. The world needs stories that will give them hope in their brokenness. The world needs stories of, of the grace of God. And you know what happens when we let Jesus have our whole story? You know what happens when we are willing to tell certain people, the right people, our whole story? We give those hurting people a container in which they can put their shame and grief and pain in as well. And when you have a place to put those things, hope and healing come and fill in behind it. It's like in the spring when you move that cinder block that you left out all winter off your lawn. What's going to be underneath it? Little green buds. Little green buds. And that's a picture of what Romans 8.28 is saying. All things work together. It means God's always working. He's working under the cinder blocks in your life and in theirs. And when we, when we give them some measure of hope in our story so that they're willing to move it, there He is. With healing and hope. I keep coming back to Psalm 51. It's... Such an extraordinary psalm. I feel like we should probably be just preaching on that for the rest of the year. But, but in Psalm 51.8, David says, Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And we talked about this a couple weeks or months ago. The bones that are broken. The bones that are broken because of our folly, because we, we swung on the swings too high, because we were trying to balance and fell. The bones that are broken, our brokenness, our, our ache, 
the limping that we do is because of these broken bones. You know, this is, this is our jars and containers. This is that thing in the basement. This is shame and grief. And the Bible all over the place says that God gives grace to broken people. Whatever that is, wherever it is in your life, God gives grace and hope and healing to us there. God can do that for you and he wants to and he will. Whatever it is in your life, he can heal you there. He can help you there. But what we're talking about this morning is something further. Redemption is further. Redemption is when the broken bones get to see their story give hope to others. When grace to us becomes grace for them and then joy for all of us. This is what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4. He says, The God of all comfort, of all comfort, comforts us in all our afflictions so that we're able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which with, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts us and we're comforted, and that's good. And whatever affliction you have and you're carrying, God can comfort you. And then you have something, don't you? You have a story now of an affliction and comfort. And others who are in some kind of affliction are going to get comfort from you, from God, through that story. One other verse I want to draw our attention to as we wrap up. 1 John four eleven to 12 if God so loved us, this is coming right out of the heels of uh, we have not loved God first, but God loved us first. And God loved us by sending his only son. So if God loved us through the, the story of Jesus, we ought also to love one another. Now listen to what he says here. He says, no one's ever seen God. But if we love one another, so this is in the context of who gets to see God. He says, nobody's seen God. But when we love one another, God's present in that. And the purpose of his love is accomplished through us. It says his, his love is made perfect in that love. That God's love, he works all things together according to his purpose. He works all things together for good. What he's doing when he loves us is to fill us up with love Fill us full so that love goes out to others. And, and in that, God is seen. In that, we, we all get to see God together. Friends, I want you to know that Jesus changes everything and everything changed by Jesus becomes good. All things work together. God has a purpose for all things. And he invites those he loves to participate, to see, and to rejoice. So this morning, God has invited us to come to him for healing. But he also invites us to consider sharing that healing with those in our life who need to hear it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we, as we think about your designs upon our life, 
We so often get fixated on gratitude and joy, which are good for being delivered from our sins and delivered from our past. And we we think about how we can follow you and we want to see Christ-likeness in our lives. And these are all good. And yet in your wisdom and in your grace and mercy, not only do you give us a new identity and a new story, but you actually bring our whole old identity and story back in and you redeem it. And you make us truly whole. So Lord, this morning there's some of us here who who need to remember that you bring healing to hurt things. You comfort those in any affliction, in all afflictions. And we need to remember that there is hope for those sad places in our life, hope with you. And there are some of us, Lord, who who need to consider putting those stories in your hands and putting our hurt and our sorrows in your hands, being willing to see you use them to give hope and help to others, to comfort others in their afflictions with the comfort that we've received from God. So Lord, we thank you for these things. We, we are intimidated sometimes by the invitation of your grace. And that's okay. But I pray that you would work in our hearts. Loosen our hearts. Open them to your love. That your love may be perfected. That it may accomplish your purpose in our hearts and through us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.